Chapter 13 of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Greg Giordano. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York. Chapter 13 by Helen Campbell Hospital Life in New York A Tour Through the Wards of Old Bellevue Affecting Scenes The Morgue and Its Silent Occupants The wayfarer on Fifth Avenue, passing through miles of stately homes, fashionable churches, great clubhouses, and all that exhibits the most lavish expenditure of wealth for personal enjoyment, comes suddenly upon a spot which in an instant recalls the fact that, under all this pomp of external life, suffering and want still hold their place. Not a stone's throw from the avenue and its brilliant life, one passes through the always open gates of St. Luke's Hospital, under the shadow of great trees, whose friendly, protecting branches are welcome and greeting for all alike. Flowers bloom here as brightly as if pain had no place. Impertinent sparrows swarm and chatter under the eaves, and, perching on window-sills or frames, look in with curious eyes on the long lines of cots. Within are broad corridors, high ceilings and great windows. A flood of sunshine is there, and the freshest of air blows straight from the sea. A cleanliness that is spotless, quiet, purity, efficient, ministration, form the atmosphere of this famous hospital, the name of which has become a synonym for the tenderest care that strangers can give to strangers. Bellevue, St. Luke's, the New York Hospital, and two or three others less widely known, are the names that generally occur when any question arises as to the hospital system of New York. Year by year the list of special and general, large and small, sectarian and unsectarian hospitals has lengthened, till today it numbers nearly 150. Methods vary but little, and each is eager to include the latest and best in its management. Thousands of medical students, not only from all parts of America, but from the world at large, come to New York hospitals to study the cases that daily pass under the surgeon's hands. The medical colleges look upon them as training schools, and each of the larger hospitals is not only its clinics for medical students, both men and women, but training schools for nurses, the numbers of whom are steadily increasing. But it is the life within these walls that most concerns us, and we will seek it at Old Bellevue, as the victims of sudden accident often must. Every saunterer in city streets knows the sudden thrill of excitement and wonder as the gong of the fire engine sounds, and the magnificent horses rush by, straining every nerve in their haste to be on the needed spot. There is another gong, no less startling and imperative, that of the ambulance, dead black as to color, 
swift and furious as to progress. Its arrival at Bellevue is of hourly occurrence, and excites no comment from officials or attendants. Victims of accidents of all kinds, and patients of all degrees, are constantly arriving at its doors. The call for an ambulance is generally sent to the hospital through the telephone, and is at once transmitted by signal bells to the surgeon's office and the stables. Two bells is the signal for an ordinary call, five if haste is necessary, and twelve for a summons to a fire, where falling walls and lurid flame so often do their deadly work. The response is a quick one in any case, but for the hurry call, the speed is so mad that it is difficult to keep one's place in the ambulance at all. A surgeon is always on duty to answer calls, and the one who is detailed for an ambulance trip may respond bareheaded, barefooted, and half-dressed, finishing his toilet as he is whirled along toward his destination. If the streets are not too crowded, any horse in the stables will make his mile in four minutes, and he bends to his work with his apparent understanding of the dignity and importance of his mission as that shown by the fire department horses. The ambulance itself is a triumph of ingenuity and invention. The bed in the bottom is of the softest and on strong deep springs. The vehicle is somber as a hearse, everything from pillows to bed, stretcher and curtains being dead black. About the sides within, splints are arranged, each with its lint bandage coiled about it ready for use. The stretcher is fastened securely, its iron rod strong enough to support the heaviest weight. Blankets, lint, bandages, belts for strapping down violent patients. Everything that can be needed for any possible emergency is there, while the doctor's satchel holds surgical instruments and stomach pump. Bellevue is known as the poor man's hospital, and thus the majority of calls come in from the poorer districts and in large proportion from the vicinity of the swarming tenements on the east side. Accidents of every nature, and the long list of casualties caused by drink, furnish abundant material, though there is a large proportion of ordinary sicknesses, many of these cases being complicated by the privations of poverty. Hark! The hurry call has sounded. A bell in the stable instantly arouses both driver and horse. The harness, always suspended and ready to be dropped on the horse's back, is already in place. The stable doors fly open, and the ambulance is ready and rolls out, before the reverberation of the five quick and imperative strokes of the signal gong have died away. The surgeon, whom another bell has summoned, is at the big archway, just as the ambulance furiously dashes up, and he springs to his seat in the rear. The address is given them, the driver gathers up the reins, and with a word to the horses, they are off at a mad pace. The ambulance is right of way, and takes the middle of the street, the gong sounding a loud and incessant alarm as they gallop on. The call has come from 16th Street, and as they turn the corner, a crowd is seen gathered about something on the sidewalk. Two or three policemen are there trying to keep free space about the huddled heap. The driver slows up and backs the ambulance to the sidewalk. Before this, the surgeon has sprung out and is bending over a man who lies there, deathly white, 
but quite unconscious, his head in a little pool of blood. It's out of a third-story window he came, head foremost, one of the policemen says. When I got to him, not a word could he say. It's dead he is, maybe, doctor. The surgeon's quick and practiced hands are passing swiftly over the prostrate figure. He has seen in a moment that the cuts on the head from which the blood streams are only superficial, but in another moment he discovers that the right leg is broken, and the fracture a serious one. A temporary splint must be put on before he can be moved, and it is produced at once from the ambulance. The man comes to himself and groans as the wounded leg is moved and dressed. The temporary bandaging is done in a moment. The patient is tenderly lifted into the ambulance, and the crowd, which has listened eagerly for every groan, disperses reluctantly. Going back to the hospital is a slower process. There is time for the surgeon to make out his slip, which must be handed in with each patient, and is really a short biography of the case. On a blank provided for this purpose, he writes that this is Patrick O'Rourke of 500 East 16th Street, and that he is a bricklayer. Patrick gives the name of some friend who can be informed of his condition, if necessary, and states how long he has been in the country, and how long in the city. Often when the ambulance pulls up at the hospital entrance, the slip is already as it is now. The receiving room doors are open as they come. There is a fixed routine that must be conformed with. The examining surgeon makes a hasty inspection of Pat's injuries and assigns him to one of the surgical wards. The officer on duty in the reception room receives the surgeon's slip, hardly looking at the patient, who is at once carried to the ward designated on the slip. Orderlies and nurses are on duty there. Pat looks about curiously though he is in sharp pain. He has the prejudice of all the ignorant against hospitals, and has listened to tales of how the doctors cut up folks alive and eat the choice dishes that ought by rights to go to the patients. He's not certain as to whether he likes the bath to which he is forced to submit. Not a full one, since his broken leg is in the way, but the orderlies take him in charge and sponge him off in warm water then lay him in bed and report him as ready for the surgeon. It is the house surgeon who comes, and Pat's leg is soon put in permanent splints. Only three hours have passed since he made his sudden plunge from the window. It seems to him as many years. He sees supper trays brought in, and wonders if the fare is like that on the island, where he has once served a month for drunkenness. He knows these are all charity patients, and while he is thinking about it, his own supper of tea and toast appears. The white-capped nurse comes again shortly with something in a glass, and Pat takes the opiate without question. The ward grows quiet, for night has come. Now and then there is a groan from some cot, or the snore of a sleeping patient. The nurse tells him the pain will soon leave him, and he looks at her white cap and admires it, and her neat apron and wonders if she and the others are like the Sisters of Charity. And, wondering, he falls asleep, and knows no more till daylight. By the end of the second day, he feels quite at home, and has begun to take an interest in his temperature card. At first this puzzles him, but he listens attentively, as the nurse explains, 
and he looks at the card respectfully. After this, he studies it for himself from day to day, and sees how he is gaining. This and the three meals a day are a constant interest, and the fixed routine seems to make the time go faster. The men on either side of him tell their stories and listen to his. He had meant to resent the coming in of the students, but they do no harm, and he is rather interested in watching them and seeing how pleased they are the way his fractured bones are knitting. There are books and papers, and as he mends, he reads them. When he is promoted to crutches and takes his first unsteady steps on them, he is as proud as is a mother of her baby's first attempt, and his neighbors in adjoining cots seem to feel the same. The man on his right, whose diet he envied because now and then he had a little wine, is gone. His bed was empty one morning when Pat waked, and his left-hand neighbor says low, I was waking a bit in the night, and Casey went off that easy not one know he was gone till the night watch came along. They've took him down to the dead house, and soon they'll be cutting him up. Pat shudders, but an hour later here's the nurse telling some inquiring friend that poor Casey is going to have a fine funeral with seven carriages, all paid for by his cousin in the Bowery. He changes his mind and is ready to swear that everything in the hospital is different from what he has been told. In spite of his leg, he feels better than he ever has in his life. His eyes have grown clear. His flesh looks fresh and wholesome, though he is pale from confinement. But he hobbles about the ward, growing stronger daily, and looking now and then at another card that is hung at the end of his cot ever since he came in. On it is written who Pat is and what he is there for. When the word cured is added, he will go out, and he wonders just how long will be needed. In the meantime, he reads, plays checkers or cards, eats his three meals with relish, and repeats his experience to all who will listen. At last comes a day when the doctor has him try his leg in various positions, and then, taking down the card, writes on it the magic word for which he has waited. Pat is cured. He goes down to the office, receives his discharge, and, a little dazed with freedom and broad daylight, makes his way to his old quarters, let us hope to profit by his experience. This is the tale of the surgical ward, where Pat, while lying on his cot, has seen every form of injury, from a nose split by falling downstairs, to a fractured skull and a broken neck. For during his stay, the ambulance has made many another trip no less hurried than that made for him. It is nearly night when the clangor of the hurry call sounds over and over again, as if a strange hand were on it, and once more the ambulance dashes out on its errand of mercy. In five minutes the spot is reached, and the child who lies in the street, mercifully unconscious, is lifted gently after a hasty bandaging of the crushed foot. She has run before a horse car, has been thrown down, and will never run again, for the foot and leg half to the knee are a shapeless mass. When the sufferer has been gently placed on a stretcher, the ambulance returns to Bellevue at a swift pace. The little patient is taken to the reception room, and the examining surgeon at once assigns her to one of the surgical wards, whither she is taken. She has been undressed in a clean white nightgown, 
put on before consciousness returns. It is impossible to save the foot, and the surgeon decides on instant amputation to save further shock to the system. The operating table is always in readiness, and every facility for such an emergency at hand. Small time is needed for preparation, and now the nurses comfort her as they tell her to breathe through a curious cylinder they have put over her nose, and she will soon feel better. She struggles a little at first, but soon yields to the influence of ether, and lies in an unconsciousness too deep for surgeon's knife to break. They are ready for her in the operating room attached to the ward, whether she is at once taken. Every instrument required is already in a shallow basin of antiseptic solution. Assistants stand each in place, including four or five white-capped nurses. The duty of each is clearly defined. One attends to nothing but the etherization of the patient. Another holds an antiseptic sponge and keeps the spot clean on which the surgeon is at work, or closes with forceps any blood vessels that may be exposed. A nurse hands every instrument as needed, and there are always one or two others with sponges and antiseptic fluids for emergency. Contrary to all popular opinion, it is a bloodless operation, nor is it a straight cut through the bone. A flap must be made, and the nurses watch carefully as the surgeon takes the foot in one hand, and with the other makes a V-shaped incision after the first cut, or so which finishes the amputation begun by the car wheel. All the jagged ends of bone are now sawed off. The blood vessels are taken up and tied with catgut, and the flesh is brought together over the exposed bones and carefully tied edge to edge, so that it will easily unite. At intervals, the wound had been freely wet with antiseptic solution, and is now powdered with iodoform. Careful bandaging finishes the operation, and in half an hour from the time it began, the child is again in bed and slowly returning to consciousness. She is drowsy, but in less pain than when she was put under the influence of ether. Sleep soon follows, and the little patient does not know till the next day that her foot is gone. In special or unusual cases demanding extra attention, a class of students and nurses is often present at a bedside consultation. As the experienced surgeon lays down the appropriate law to the students, he is supplemented by the more experienced head nurses, the younger ones eagerly drinking in every item mentioned by the authorities they strive to follow. Antiseptic methods have revolutionized modern hospital surgery. Twenty-five years ago, a surgeon who succeeded in closing a wound so that it healed by the first intention, as their phrase has it, congratulated himself on a triumph, which might as easily have been a failure. The germ theory is at the bottom of this, and many other things. Air and water are full of these deadly germs that irritate and inflame a wound if enclosed in it. But if this difficulty is conquered by the use of some harmless chemical in water, which has been carefully distilled, all danger ceases. The surgeon's hands, the instruments, sponges, everything coming in contact with such a wound, must be kept wet with this solution. With such precautions as these, operations that a generation ago were considered inevitably fatal are performed with perfect success, while wounds that once required six weeks for cure heal now in two or three. 
leaving only the faintest of scars. There is no surgical fever as in the past, and the whole process has been brought to almost absolute perfection. It is to the great amphitheater of Bellevue that much of this progress is due. You are apt to think of a hospital as a place where young medical students experiment at will, often with barbarous disregard of patients' rights and feelings. There are, sometimes, such instances, it is true, but they are of the rarest. Take the actual facts of an appointment to each position. The highest prize sought yearly by the graduates of the medical colleges is a hospital appointment, and the class of one of the house surgeons at Bellevue were over 200 students. The 20 who stood highest were the ones eligible for such appointment, and out of these 20, but four would be chosen. Thus the men who won were the cream of the 200, and they accepted a task that only a man devoted to his profession would take. The work is in the highest degree responsible and burdensome, and there is no evading it. Food and sleep must often be renounced to meet the unceasing demands of the place. Its compensation is the experience of which more is gained in a week than a year of private practice would bring, and the ease of getting into regular practice after such a probation. It is in the wards that the student's work is chiefly done. In the great amphitheater, operations are performed before the students by the most famous surgeons of New York, who gladly operate for the sake of keeping up their facility as well as for humanity's sake. It is thus perfectly true that the charity patients at Bellevue receives as skilled treatment and careful nursing as falls to the lot of the rich man. Trained nurses watch for every change. A physician is within sound of his voice, and the visiting surgeon is ready to note every particular of the case. Home is best when the convalescence begins, for there can be more freedom there. But till then a hospital ward must be counted one of the greatest of modern blessings, and the security it affords that the wisest and best course will be taken with the patient. The Bellevue Amphitheater is famous. No operating room in the world has witnessed so many or so frequent triumphs of surgical skill. About the bare and unattractive apartment rises a deep bank of seats capable of holding between three and four hundred. In the arena stands the operating table in a space about twelve feet wide. It is low and long, seven feet by two, and has on it a thin, hard mattress covered with rubber. No one who's laid upon it knows it to be hard or soft. Once upon it, the merciful ether quickly does its work, and the patient, whose face is hidden by the cone, lies flat, with their head turned to one side, that the tongue may not interfere with the breathing. The medical college professor in charge explains to the assembled students the nature of the operation, and work begins. It is of the swiftest. A leg has been known to be taken off in fifteen seconds. That did not complete the operation, but the time between the first touch of the knife and the removal of the severed leg was less than a quarter of a minute. It was a case of hip disease, in which the leg was taken off a little below to avoid hemorrhage, and then the bone removed at the joint. Skill like this has its own fascination, and the amphitheater could tell many a tale of operations that are romances, enthusiasm, skill, well-nigh miraculous, results as thoroughly so, are part of the story of any modern hospital, and surgery has reached the point of science, where uncertainty is small indeed. 
the child whose foot was taken off will go home in a fortnight or three weeks as well as ever and the artificial foot that will be provided her is as like a natural one as science can make it which is saying much comparatively few surgical operations result fatally there are naturally some cases where a small chance exists for recovery but the chance is always taken occasionally the last hours of an incurable are made comfortable by an operation undertaken with no other object than the peaceful end for the patient and a life that has known only pain and anguish finds tranquillity and peace in dying i told her i might be able to give her two days of comfort by an operation it might be a shorter time and she might die under the knife said a surgeon of a patient on the other hand without an operation she would continue to suffer till she died i told her husband the same both consented to make the trial he because he could not endure seeing her agonies she because she could not endure having him see them i performed the operation she lived just thirty-six hours in peace afterward he thanked me with tears rolling down his cheeks for those last precious painless hours although they hastened the end in the medical ward the same skillful treatment and careful attendance is maintained for each and all are the white-capped nurses the serious doctors the throng of students and the constant coming and going of new cases twelve hundred beds are always full every form of malady or deformity that can afflict mankind is seen in these wards in which a constant weeding out process goes on contagious diseases are sent to their appropriate hospital each special disease has its own hospital and staff of specialists and the dispensaries which form part of the hospital system take pains to send patients needing hospital treatment to the proper one the drug department at bellevue annually dispenses for use in this hospital alone about one hundred and thirty five thousand yards of surgical gauze six hundred pounds of lint eighty five hundred pounds of absorbent cotton fifty bales of oakum and vast quantities of drugs including nearly one thousand pounds of ether in the cellar about seventy five thousand bottles are washed annually though many are free it is the endeavor to make patients pay where possible though at bellevue the highest charge is only three dollars and a half a week in the new york hospital prices range from seven to thirty dollars a week and in the private rooms one may receive a care impossible in any private house even with a trained nurse but the prejudice against hospitals as a whole runs through all ranks and naturally enough the freedom of home the desire that those who are best loved may be near one and the fear of dying alone save for hired attendants will always deter the great majority from accepting the hospital as the best place for quick and effectual treatment of disease for the mass who have no choice or who are incapable of paying for attendance at home the growth of special hospitals is often a boon beyond words the specialty of the new york hospital is its surgical cases and like most others it objects strongly to chronic ones this at times bears heavily upon applicants a perfectly respectable man who has spent all his money and is suffering from some chronic trouble that has disabled him may make the rounds of the hospitals 
growing more and more despairing with every refusal. St. Luke's most often opens its doors to such, but only five hospitals out of the long list are bound by their charter to take every patient that applies for admission. Nearly all will take what are called emergency cases, but a chronic invalid fills the room sorely needed for cases that demand immediate attention. The usual length of time for the ordinary patient is from a week to seventeen days, and there is constant pressure for room. No hospital likes to increase its death rate, and there is always a little feeling on this point. Bellevue sometimes makes complaint that if the other hospitals receive cases likely to die on their hands, they transfer them at once to it, as in the case of a large fire, where several were burned so severely that death was inevitable. There is an explanation for this, and a perfectly reasonable one. In the New York Hospital, for example, with its large proportion of serious cases of surgical operations, the recovery depends almost entirely on perfect rest and quiet. Even one severely burned patient, delirious and noisy, as all such are likely to be, will keep the entire ward in an uproar, this meaning certain death for many other patients. It is a case where the individual must sometimes suffer for the general good, but such cases are rare. As a rule, the stranger or citizen alike, who needs help, finds it, and the long roll of hospitals and dispensaries means a beneficence that is hardly possible to overestimate. There is one hospital whose roof affords a strange and piteous sight. It is the orthopedic hospital on Lexington Avenue, and the roof is its playground for its convalescents. Here are deformed little ones, some with feet bent double, some with bodies sat laterally from hips, twisted, bent, held up by iron bolts and trusses, and all devices of modern surgery. And here on the roof, far remote from the din of streets, they play as if sickness were not and pain had been forgotten. Wonderful cures go out from here, and if there are not always cures, there is always relief. An hour spent in the children's ward of any great hospital convinces one that for the majority, Home could offer nothing so perfect in care, and often nothing so wise and tender. The first entrance into such a ward fills one with pity and sympathy that is often heartbreaking. They are so patient, these suffering little ones, who obey implicitly and bear their pain so mutely that even the experienced doctors and nurses are often moved to tears of wonder and pity. They are easily entertained, a scrapbook of bright pictures, a doll that can be hugged close, a toy or flower are dear delights. Many visitors come and go, and seldom come empty-handed. Often the child finds special friends, and is adopted or otherwise cared for, and often in the quiet and healing of long weeks of cleanliness, good food, and all that had been lacking in a life of poverty before, real health begins, and the child lays the foundation of a new life. A children's ward is a world in itself, in which the inhabitants are little people, with different language manners, feelings, and thoughts to men and women. Children are much more difficult to nurse than adults. Their language is often quite inadequate to express what they feel, and in their sorrows and wants they are more or less dumb. A nurse must read the unwritten speech of their eyes, hands, and feet, and watch their tears, smiles, gestures, and expressions 
to divine what they mean. A celebrated French physician, who had charge of the hospital for waifs and strays in Paris, declared that he was able to diagnose children's diseases from the lines and furrows on their faces. A skillful nurse will learn almost as much from their cries. It is beautiful to see how the eyes of the little sufferers brighten when the nurses speak to them in their low and gentle voices, when they have got over the worst of their troubles and find themselves in pleasant rooms made still more cheerful by pictures, illuminated texts and flowers, common possession of picture books, dolls, Noah's arks, rocking horses, and live kittens, and sole proprietors of other toys, with little shelves to range them on, well-fed and cleanly clad, and waited on by these kindly ministering angels. The little patients must almost fancy themselves in heaven. As strength comes back to them, they indulge in plenty of fun. They play at doctors, gravely looking at one another's tongues and feeling one another's pulses. They cuddle and dress up their kittens like babies and put their doll's hair into curl papers. When convalescence permits a little more latitude in diet, they are often as hard to please as patients of older years. One little mite, when asked to order her dinner, demanded, Beefsteak and onions, and another, Sausages. In the ordinary wards, there is a medley of cases. Of those seen in a recent visit to a children's ward, some were on the floor playing, while others watched them from the spotlessly white little beds. One small boy, who had been beaten almost to a jelly by a drunken father, howled at the top of his lungs while his wounds were being dressed, and when all was over, proceeded to torment every other child in the ward. There is always one nuisance of this description, and it complicates the nurse's work immensely. He was sent back to bed finally, and lay there kicking off the coverlet, or winding it about him till quieted by a fresh scrapbook. Next to him was a three-year-old child, swathed in bandages. It had been thrown on a red-hot stove by a drunken mother, and it was doubtful if the contracted sinews could ever be made to yield. A seven-year-old child with his right leg in plaster was kicked downstairs by his father, who was now on Blackwell's Island. And next to him was Tommy, aged three, sitting up and just recovering from a burn contracted on his own account, and examining a kettle of boiling water. Yonder might of a girl has lost one leg, and is destined to lose the other. Her pride in the perambulator in which she takes her airings, in which she looks upon as her own private carriage, is the way in which the wind is tempered to the shorn lamb. Another is waiting for the surgeon to free her from a hideous tumor. A third is crying, not so much on account of her own sufferings, as because it is washing day at home, and she cannot be there to mind the baby. We are apt to lose sight of the fact that children live in the present. The little ones are cognizant of no past and no future, and therefore, while they suffer, they suffer with their entire nature. They have no superannuated memories, no philosophy by which to rob grief of its sting. Thus their sorrows fill their whole hearts and minds, although they weep but for the loss of a plaything, with a broken neck of a doll. Most nurses love children. One can see the motherhood in their eyes as they bend over their cots and soothe them to sleep, and small wonder that they love them so well. The most beautiful thing in this life is the faith and trust of a child, and the world can never grow old 
while it possesses little children. Most of those in the children's ward come from terrible homes, where they see vice and sin rampant, and the world, the flesh, and the devil are present both night and day. No halo of love and goodness surrounds their poor lives as a rule, but they grow up to sin in their wretched tenement rooms as easily as they would grow up to be good and happy homes. One night not long since a child in the hospital ward lay dying. She heard some drunken men brawl as they passed under the window. That's father, the child said. He comes home tipsy every night. The nurse looked at the little face and thought it was terrible that the child should die, having known nothing of this world but its sin. She spoke of God and of heaven, but the child could not understand. Taking some violets from a cup on the table, the nurse said, Look at these. The flowers in heaven are more beautiful than violets. Oh, then may I pick them? said the child. In spite of the loving care lavished on the little sufferers, and by the flower-like way in which those who are getting over their sufferings open to the sunshine, sadness must be the dominant outcome of a walk through the children's ward, all the more so if the visitor has healthy, rollicking children of his own waiting to welcome him at home. At the end of the lawn at Bellevue, close by the river, and partly extending over the water, is a long, low building. It is the morgue, where lie, often to the number of thirty or forty, the unclaimed and unknown dead in rough pine boxes of the very cheapest description. At the head of each coffin is tacked a card, giving all the information that is known of each case. Of those who die in hospital, it is generally possible to give the name, age, native place, and date of death, and these items are carefully noted on the card. It is also stated whether the person died friendless, or the body is waiting for friends, but the majority of the silent occupants of the morgue are unknown. They wait in vain for friends to identify them, and find rest at last in nameless graves in the potter's field. There is one portion of Bellevue seldom seen by the public, and holding almost as much tragedy as the morgue not far beyond. It is the prisoner's ward, where are cells for sick prisoners of every order. Slight ailments are treated by police surgeons in the various jails of the city where prisoners happen to be lodged. The numerous police station houses also have cells where an army of prisoners is confined every night. But the tombs is the great receiving center, over 50,000 prisoners passing through it annually. Naturally, then, there are many patients, and all critical cases are removed to Bellevue. Often, too, an attempted murder, where the murderer seeks suicide as his only way out. Both murderer and victim may be taken here. Men, women, and even children, who stab and throttle even more than the newspapers record, lie under guard, knowing that when recovery comes, the law and its course awaits them. Here come weeping friends, sadder even than those who seek the morgue, and breathe freer when they find that death has ended the career that was disgrace and misery for both sinner and sinned against. To one of these cells there came one morning a woman, bearing the usual permit to visit a patient. She was a slender, pale little woman, the look of delicate refinement that sorrow had only intensified, and she looked at the physician who was just leaving the patient, with clear eyes which had wept often, who kept their steady, straightforward gaze. 
I am not certain, she said. I have searched for my boy for a long while, and I think he must be here. All the clues have led me here. I want to see him. The doctor looked at her pitifully as she went up to the narrow bed where the patient lay, a lad of hardly twenty, with his face buried in the pillow, his fair hair, waving crisply against the skin browned by exposure, had not yet been cut, for the hospital barber who stood there had found it so far impossible to make him turn his head. "'He's lain that way ever since they brought him in yesterday,' said the barber, and then, moved by something in the agitated face before him, turned his own away. The mother, for it was quite plain who this must be, stooped over the prostrate figure. She knew it as mothers know their own, and laid her hand on the burning head. "'Charlie?' she said softly, as if she had come into his room to rouse him from some boyish sleep. "'Mother is here?' A wild cry rang out that startled even the experienced physician. "'For God's sake, take her away! She doesn't know what I am! Take her away!' The patient had started up and wrung hands of piteous entreaty. "'Take her away!' he still cried but the mother gently folded her arms about him and drew his head to her breast. "'Oh, Charlie, I have found you,' she said through her sobs, "'and I will never lose you again.' The lad looked at her for a moment. His eyes were like hers, large and clear, but with the experience of a thousand years in their depths. A beautiful, reckless face, with lines graven by passion and crime. Then he burst into weeping like a child. "'It's too late! It's too late!' he said in tones, almost inaudible. "'I'm doing you the only good turn I've done you, mother. I'm dying, and you won't have to break your heart over me any more. It wasn't your fault. It was the cursed drink that ruined me, lighted my life, and brought me here. It's murder now, but the hangman won't have me.' and I shall save that much of disgrace for our name. As he spoke, he fell back upon his pillow. His face changed, and the unmistakable hue of death suddenly spread over his handsome features. The doctor came forward quickly, a look of anxious surprise on his face. It was plain that the end was near. I didn't know he was that bad, the barber muttered under his breath as he gazed at the lad holding still to his mother's hand. The doctor lifted his patient's head, and then laid it back softly. Life had fled. It is better to have it so, he said to himself in a low voice, and then stood silently and reverently, ready to offer consolation to the bereaved mother, whose face was still hidden in the boy's breast. She did not stir. Something in the motionless attitude aroused vague suspicion in the mind of the doctor, and moved him to bend forward and gently take her hand. With an involuntary start, he hastily lifted the prostrate form, and quickly felt pulse and heart, only to find them stilled forever. "'She is gone, too,' he softly whispered, and the tears stood in his eyes. "'Poor soul! It is the best thing for both of them.' That is one story of the prison ward of Bellevue, and there are hundreds that might be told, though never one sadder, or holding deeper tragedy, than this one recorded here.
End of chapter 13. Read by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida.